Hey, what's up, everybody? Happy Friday or Saturday or Sunday or Monday. I don't know what day you're listening to this, but whatever day it is, hope it's a great day for you. Quick note before we get started for today's show, I want to tell you about the growth we've been seeing with this show and with Lions of Liberty Pride. Um, We're having some of the best download numbers we've ever had, and that is all thanks to you guys, thanks to our new listeners from our advertising on the Reason Roundtable, and the growth we've seen in the Lions of Liberty Pride, which you can join by going to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. We are now over our goal of $1,500 per month, which gets us to really doing the Libertarian National Convention the right way, getting a videographer there to document everything, put out great content, interviews, video, all that stuff for you guys to enjoy. So we're not stopping here. We want to keep going. Uh, The next goal is $2,000 a month. So please help us to get there. Uh, You can do that by joining us for as little as $5 per month. Actually, as little as $2 per month, you can get access to our Facebook group. If you want bonus content and all that good stuff, you got to give us at least $5 per month to get that. It's, it is so worth it. So please join us at the Lions of Liberty Pride, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. What is Felony Friday? Felony Friday is a show where every single week we're going to do a deep dive and we're going to examine and expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, if this is your first time listening to Felony Friday, your first time listening to any of the shows we have here on Lions of Liberty, Sit back, relax, enjoy the show, put your feet up. If you're driving, please don't put your feet up. But if you've been back several times, if this is a regular habit of listening, why haven't you subscribed? Or maybe you have subscribed. Thank you if you subscribed. But if you haven't, please do so. Whatever podcasting app you're listening on, please just scroll up to the top there, punch that subscribe button, and uh, you'll get every single episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast and of Felony Friday delivered to your little listening device. And also, if you really enjoy what you're hearing here, please think about uh, giving us a a five-star rating and a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, especially if you listen there, because it helps with the algorithms and all that crazy stuff. Without further ado, let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Nick Stein. Nick is here to share his story about how he ended up with two marijuana convictions, a uh, misdemeanor for possession, and a felony for intent to distribute. And Nick's story is going to be a little bit different uh, than some of the other stories we've talked about here. He did not serve a significant, or I should say a long prison sentence. Any time in prison or in jail is, uh, is significant. But uh, he's also here to talk about, and we're going to hit on some of uh, some activism that he's doing up in Connecticut to try to get recreational marijuana legalized and uh, to work on some uh, expungements up there as well. So, Nick, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks for having me, John. And uh, once again, thanks for everything you're doing for to bring awareness to the criminal justice system of a lot of the injustices that are happening. I appreciate that. And you're also someone, as I mentioned in the intro, who's who's doing the same. And uh, I would guess that your inspiration, your drive comes from your your personal experience, you know, some of the things you've you've had happen to you. So I want to talk about and get through that part of the story, that part of your life, what happened there. But before we do that, just to just to kind of set it up so people, you know, know more about you as a person and your background, if you could just share a little bit about um, you know, what your life was like before you ever had a run-in with the law, before you were ever arrested? You know, what part of the country did you grow up in? What was your upbringing like? Uh, yeah, I grew up in a beautiful, rural, uh, very woodsy, backwoods town in northeast Connecticut um, called Pomfret, Connecticut. And uh, it's about an hour and a half away from Boston, about two and a half hours away from New York. So while rural, it's very central to a couple of very urban developed areas. 
Um, I, I grew up there with uh, me, my mom, and my brother for most of my life. Uh, my father, unfortunately, passed away when I was very young. So four years old, he passed away. Uh, and my mom uh, uh, did her very best to raise my brother and I as a single parent. Um, and she did a great job. Um, but, you know, that's obviously very challenging. And, uh, and um, she uh, used marijuana throughout my, my childhood. Um, I'm going to call it a 420 friendly childhood. Not that I used it myself, but just in the same way that alcohol might be around a lot of families in, mm-hmm. in that, you know, the dad has a beer or, uh, you know, or a cocktail uh, or mom, that is. But uh, my mom would self-medicate using uh, marijuana, sometimes alcohol, too, but uh, marijuana. And it was just something that we kind of kind of knew about in mm-hmm. the household. So. Uh, didn't think much of it at the time, but, you know, in, in doing a lot of historical self-reflection on my life and with my brother, I think it's something that's pretty unique about our childhood and very uh, significantly impacted, you know, some of the choices that I made with my life later on. Mm-hmm. So um, so my mom did a, a good job uh, 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 being a single parent and taking care of us. And uh, it it was hard for her, but it was really important that she stayed in Pomfret. Um after losing my dad, it was really hard for her to, to hold the family together, but she wanted to stay in Pomfret because it had a really good education system. Uh, and I'm, I'm really thankful that she did do that because uh, the public education was second to none. And because it was so rural, our town actually paid for um, all of the, the high school students to go to a private high school. So um, I got a very good, yeah. So it, it's, it's the, they still have to follow the rules of a public high school, but mm-hmm. about you know, a, a good portion of the kids who went there were, were public and, um, and, but also it was a private high school more than it was a public high school. So, Interesting. um, yeah. And it even had the Academy attached to it. Shout out to Woodstock Academy. If anyone's <laughs> listening from Woodstock Academy, so from Woodstock, Connecticut. So, um, yeah, so she made some sacrifices. Uh, she, she was a caterer. She was a gardener. She was doing the gig economy before it was cool mm-hmm. and, uh, and doing whatever it took to get me and my brother, um, uh, you know, through, through, uh, high school and through and and get us into college. So, um, I started using marijuana in high school, uh, mostly just as a social thing. Uh, once again, I, I witnessed my mom do it, but it's another something that we did together. Uh, it was just something that, uh, I started doing on my own with my friends because I wanted to be cool and I thought it was cool. Just curious. (laughs) Did your mom ever like give you a, you know, that, that parent speech on marijuana or on drugs or anything like that about, you know, I don't remember necessarily. She, I don't remember that mm-hmm. conversation. So probably not, not in an impactful yeah. way. Let's put it that way. Um, she did about drinking and driving. Right. Definitely gave me that talk. Um, you know, we had the used condoms talk. So it's not for, <laughs> it's not for, uh, with your mom, which is awkward, right? But, uh, it's not that she didn't care about it. It's just, uh, and, and I agree now looking back, it would not be on my, uh, highest list of concerns as a single parent, if I were in her shoes. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't think she ever exp- explicitly said no, but maybe relied on some of the dare and other drug educations that right, I, right. I had had at the time. So obviously they didn't work <laughs> as so, I'll get into. <laughs> so, so you went off to college and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think it, it is worth noting that you, you did have, it is a unique up, upbringing um, in that your, your mother was using marijuana. It's probably become less unique today as we have, you know, legal recreational marijuana in so many States. It's probably becoming more and more common, you know, kids growing up in, in Colorado or in Washington state or all these other states that, that are legalizing. It's probably becoming just to, you know, just like you said, just like having a beer when you get home from work, uh, having a you know nice glass of whiskey or something like that. So um, when you went into college and you started experimenting and, uh, you know, smoking weed to be cool or just to relax, um, how did that escalate into uh, the, the next step and actually... I assume it escalated into, into selling it, and that's how you, you got caught. Yeah, so I went to state school, University of Connecticut, uh, or the state college, rather, um, which meant that about two-thirds of my friends came with me because we all went to – a lot of us went to college mm-hmm. together. So, um, you know, I had always been the one who was most uh, – who, who used marijuana more than most of my other friends – 
And, and having lived that life, I was exposed to the black market because it's the only way to procure marijuana. Mm -hmm. Um, and just by having been given that exposure, you know, I got to know more and more, I'm going to call them drug dealers, but I really only talked to people who sold weed. Um, however, they, they all had ever increasing amounts of marijuana to offer me. If only I could find some other of my friends who were interested Mm -hmm. in, in the same thing. So um, that combined with my generally outgoing and entrepreneurial spirit, um, it became pretty, I, re- I realized the oper- the economic opportunity for myself to start selling marijuana. We didn't grow up in a rich household. Um, I don't consider myself other than my mom making all the sacrifices to stay in that private school neighborhood. That's the only bit of white privilege that I'm going to consider myself to ever have been given, um, paid my way through school and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I, I like the money. So that's pretty much the main reason I started. And you know, it wasn't so much the money it, that did help, but, uh, really just having somebody need you for something, even looking back now, I know that those people didn't really need me, but they were calling me at least once a week. Right. Mm-hmm. I felt popular. Uh, uh, and just, just having people continuously reach out to me and feeling that I was important to people. Um, that was a lot of the reason that I, that I got into selling it. So, um, and you know, I, I didn't really feel that bad because if it had been any other drugs, you know, I was really ingrained. And even if I didn't know the specific science, I could see uh, other drugs have really negative effects on people, but having had personal experience with marijuana and also, uh, a lot of friends who use marijuana, I never really saw the negative effects the right. way that a, a lot of other drugs and that's because those negative effects are significantly less bad than alcohol mm-hmm. um and uh and that's kind of what our society measures intoxicants against you know so um so i didn't really think i was hurting anyone at the time looking back i realized i hurt myself more than i hurt anybody else actually that's a lie i hurt my mom more than i hurt anybody else but mm-hmm. um yeah that's uh that that that's kind of my reasoning for getting into it um so that was at UConn. I actually have three arrests on my record and two convictions. So the first one happened uh, within the first month of being at UConn. I li- went to, to live on, on campus and uh, I, I was smoking in the dorm room. We use this thing called a spoof, right? So you don't want it to smell. Mm-hmm. So you'd, uh, you'd take a, a, a paper towel, towel roll and jam it full of as many uh, dryer sheets as you possibly could. And then you'd inhale the smoke and you'd exhale through the spoof, right? I've, so it would clean. I've, I've heard of that before. Yeah. It didn't work. <laughs> it did not work. Uh, it just smelled like really musty. Uh, it still smelled like marijuana yeah. smoke, just just flavored, right? So uh, Flavored anyway. with dryer sheets. Yeah. yeah. So like, I guess it was sort of effective, but not really. So that was in the dorm room, which was a no-go. Um, I ended up leaving and going to class one day. And then within five minutes, my roommate came back, who I also, also smoked with, got paired mm-hmm. up with a good one there. And, uh, and, uh, and that he ended up getting arrested. <laughs> so they, they had smelled the smoke from when I was smoking. Mm-hmm. And then they, within a minute of him getting home from class, as I had already left, he actually was the one who got, I'm going to say raided. But um, yeah, so he got arrested and I ended up getting arrested in that whole deal too. But it was just simple possession. Uh, I didn't have a scale. I wasn't really scale is for, you know, for measuring marijuana. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what they're looking for, for, for really getting you in more trouble. And, uh, and, uh, they didn't, uh, they, they didn't pursue my case except for to give me, uh, they gave me misdemeanor and then they wiped it off as long as Mm -hmm. I, I forget what they call it, but basically you get one freebie for, for low level stuff. So. So did, um, did that impact you at school at all? I know sometimes on college campuses that can impact your ability to maybe you get kicked out for a semester or something like that. Yeah. So I got kicked off campus, which okay. was huge because I would probably would not have taken my selling marijuana to the level that I did if I was still living on campus. Instead, I got an apartment off campus and, and then had a pass to drive and park on campus. So I was officially, you know, I could operate whatever, however I wanted to operate out of my new apartment where I lived alone at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So also uh, I lost all my money from that. I had already put into the housing program. So needed to get some money back. So I guess it kind of uh, uh, drove me to make my part-time more recreational. Let me just hook people up with, with marijuana, you know, 
just for them and, and to make people happy. Um, mm-hmm. And instead, it became more of a job for me after that. And I really, for the next year after that, I really, um, I'm going to say I had somebody working for me in every dorm, not that I was putting them to work, but there was generally an enthusiast in each of the 12 dorms that mm-hmm. I would uh, weigh out an ounce or, or somewhere thereabouts and, and give it to them and then just let them sell it. And then they'd come back to me, pay me for that one. And I'd give them more. Right. So yeah. like, like, I about- mean, and like you said, I mean, I think that's very normal on college campuses. And you like, you also, you also said earlier, like when you're interacting with people on college campuses who are selling drugs they're only selling typically a lot of them are just selling marijuana which would be rare off of a college campus um you're typically going to interact with drug dealers who would offer you know different things um other than marijuana but it is for whatever reason on college campuses it i think it's it's something to do with people become insulated in that bubble that college bubble and uh like you said there's you know, you don't have these uh, really negative impacts of, uh, of smoking weed. You don't see people, you know, passing out or getting sick or things like that. So naturally, you would, I mean, just human nature takes over. Well, this this isn't a harmful thing. So what, is there anything wrong with smoking it? And you sort of forget your surroundings. You sort of forget where you are and you forget it's illegal. But anyway, continue. Yeah, so that's what that's definitely what happened to me. I I did not take the precautions I probably should have if I wanted to continue that as a profession for any amount of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially having you know potentially twelve people uh, uh, who could get caught and trace their, their their the sale back to me. So that's what happened. About four of those people and one in particular got caught. Um, about sorry about that four four of those people one in particular got caught Mm. and uh they all rolled on me and they ratted me out and one of them really ratted me out right so um what it was right around finals when i got my first arrest that resulted in a conviction and uh finals in my sophomore year so um just had spent all day studying i think it was an all-nighter from the night before so i was exhausted into the night and uh and um a couple of days before, one of these guys had said, hey, uh, you know, a friend of mine got arrested and they said that the cops said they're looking for someone of your description with your car because they know where this weed is coming from. Right. And he's like, so he told me that a couple of days before mm. to, to, to prep me. Then he called me up again and saying, hey, uh, you know, these cops are hot on you. I just heard somebody else confirm the story. And he's wow. like, but but, you know, I know you said you just picked up and you have like two pounds, but. I know somebody who will take all of that off your hands right now. Right. So I said, thought about it. And, and I was like, you know what, if I can get out of all of this, sure, let's do it. Let's, uh, wow. I, yeah. So I forget how much exactly it was, but I decided not to take it all over there with me. I only decided to take a quarter pound and that was probably pretty smart. So and uh, for, forgive me for a minute, but so did you say that you considered this person to be a good friend of yours? Or? No, not so much. A friend of a friend. Okay. At the time, though, you know, I'm a pretty outgoing guy and, and naturally very trusting. Like I mm-hmm. said before, I did not take the proper precautions to make this a, a line of work right. that I that I would have succeeded in long term. So uh, everyone's my friend, especially mm-hmm. at that point in my life. Right. So had never really been betrayed to this level before. Right. Um, so when I showed up there, uh, got pulled over on my way. Uh, by a canine unit, if you can imagine that. And uh, <laughs> they happened to find a quarter pound of marijuana broken up into a bunch of different bags in the trunk, right? So mm-hmm. um, especially me at the time, I because I went to a good school system and was part of like Model United Nations and really knew the law, I probably shouldn't have rolled on myself as quickly as I did, but they had me dead to rights. And uh, I, I did it. I completely talked, told them everything I was doing. And they played the good cop, bad cop routine. Uh, mm-hmm. They they got everything out of me they wanted to get out of me, and it's actually, you know, I'm I'm not I'm almost as equally as embarrassed about that as I am about you know having been arrested in the first place. Right, it was not uh, making it harder for them, but they had that case completely. They had every detail about every drug I sold on UConn or every every person I had working for me on UConn campus. And, I think uh, it's, I think it's yeah. a lot easier in hindsight, looking back on something like that in the heat of the moment. I mean, you like to think that you're going to be, you know, on your toes and, and know the law and not let them search the vehicle and all these different things and not give anything up, but it's not easy to do in the heat of the moment. I'm sure. 
No, definitely not. So, uh, and yeah, I was, I was scared shitless, definitely mm-hmm. scared. So, um, yeah, so they took, booked me, took me to jail that night. Uh, uh, next day I ended up getting bailed out. And, uh, so I spent, you know, one night in jail next day I got bailed out and then the, the court process began. It actually took them two years for us to get to a conviction after that. Um, because I was trying to, to, to get the felony off my record for a long time. And, um, the, the prosecutor was a pretty hard ass, especially with Yukon in his jurisdiction. He was under a lot of pressure to make sure that people who sold marijuana or any other drugs on Yukon mm-hmm. really took, you know, they got the, the maximum treatment of the law. So, uh, uh, he was pushing for a felony with jail time for a long time. Um, and I ended up pleading to my, I had a great lawyer, spent about $8,000 on that lawyer, uh, throughout the course of those two years and, uh, ended up pleading to, uh, just a misdemeanor possession, even though they had caught me with more than that and had all the details. Um, but there was a 90 day sentence attached to it. And I served 30 of those 90 days before they let me out on good behavior. So, um, or whatever other thing they used to measure whether I should have been in there. So. I think back on that a lot now, or a lot now, though, um, and especially listening to your program, um, some of the other stories I've heard, those people who couldn't afford lawyers mm-hmm. easily could have been faced with seven to 10 years in jail for what I did, right? So the fact that I had that $8,000 made all the difference in my case. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I could afford to, one, get bailed out, right. and two, I could afford to fight for two years having being out, you know, and actually continuing to pursue my education at another college during that whole time. Right. So, um, so, uh, that made a big difference for me. And, uh, looking back, I'm very lucky to have that opportunity. And a lot of my advocacy now, um, I really don't want anyone to go through that experience who, who I'm lucky that I had the resources to to fight my way out of it, but I really don't want anyone who doesn't have the resources for that fight Mm -hmm. uh, to have it impact them because, I certainly wouldn't have been able to to be here today if I didn't have bail money and money for a lawyer at right. that time. I wouldn't have made it this far. So that's a lot of my motivation. I got a lot of motivations, but that's certainly high on the yeah. list. So, so that the thirty days that you did serve, um, what what was that like for you? I mean, is that something that you know was it as you expected, or was it did things surprise you about how how things were run, or what was it well? Like? It, it was surreal. So for at least the first couple of days, I never thought that, and I, I still kind of don't remember necessarily, but it didn't feel real to me. Right. So, uh, you know, I got booked, I, I went and then everything slows down. That's all I can mm-hmm. say is that everything when you're in, in, in jail, uh, and I wasn't even in for long, but it slows down and, uh, jail is disgusting. It's, uh, they're at least the one I was at, uh, it was really dirty. And, uh, the food was not good. Um, it, there was a lot of harassment of the prisoners. Uh, there was a, it seemed like everything was factionalized and they kept people, um, at each other's throats so that they didn't have, and I say they, but the correctional officers Mm -hmm. didn't have to do all of the policing. And it was, they kind of left, uh, left it up to, uh, different factions within the jail that would police each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a dorm, which is a little diff- different than being, you know, uh, in a cell with one other person. I was in a dorm with uh, with four four people per per room, and then no gate on the front, so you could move around pretty freely. Um, it was really really loud. I remember nobody slept, and then they'd wake you up at four in the morning anyway. Um, so it was uh, there was a lot of things that I found really really surprising. And obviously, who would have thought that, you know, a, a white kid from n- northeast Connecticut, uh, from the woods, from a high school called Woodstock Academy, who would have thought that that person wouldn't fit in with a lot of the other demographics that were in there, right? Yeah. So I also was definitely uh, definitely um, in there. Everybody knew that I was fresh meat. That's, you know, I heard that mm-hmm. saying multiple times. And uh Luckily, I had just come off of playing basketball for for three years, and I was still pretty good uh, because, you know, having shown my prowess on the court, I still believe to this day that earned me a couple of key friends there. Only 30 days, but whatever. Mm -hmm. They remember seeing me play basketball and saw that I was pretty good. And had I not been, then maybe I wouldn't have caught those people eye, those people's eyes. And they really they took care of me and and they made sure nothing bad happened if there was anything bad to happen. Mm -hmm. But um, the whole experience is horrible. 
and uh, you know, it's it's crushing the when you're in there. You you can't like I said, time slows down. Uh, your entire future is in question. You're at the mercy of bureaucracy, which I knew I didn't realize how uh, how how painful that is or how how frustrating that can be. But uh, it would have been so much worse. If, all I can say is it would have been so much worse if I hadn't been able to make bail. And I could right. only imagine. I was sitting in in there with somebody who uh, who went to court and he thought he was finally going to get his court date and he got continued again and he had been continued like three or four times in a row before that. So I can only imagine how, how much more frustrating it was for everybody else in there other than me, but yeah. gave me a perspective on, on life that I didn't have before. So for that, I'm grateful. I'm just glad I didn't have to spend more than 30 days in there. So, you know. so, so you talked a little bit about your activism. You know, one of the things you're trying to do is make sure that, uh, you know, other people, you know, don't end up with the other people who, who can't afford maybe the eight thousand dollars to uh, to hire a lawyer or to to make bail um, aren't subjected to that. So, what, what types of things are you doing with your your activism in order to uh, set those wheels in motion in Connecticut? Yeah, so I didn't really start until about two years ago. Um, the reason for that is during this whole time, I graduated from uh, uh, graduated from college, got a degree in economics. Uh, ended up working for an aerospace manufacturing company that makes parts for airplanes. Um, and then from there, ended up working uh, for a company, working for a company that makes military aerospace parts. So uh, the owner of that company knew about my history and was able to get me in um, without ever doing a background check or some of the other things that would have been required to work at a company that makes military mm-hmm. parts like that. But I had to shut up. I couldn't let anybody know where I was coming from, right? Oh, really? Or anything that had happened to me. So uh-huh. I had gotten a job, uh, worked there for about three years, um, and then I got arrested again because I'm an idiot. So uh, it was right after Colorado. Um, it was right after Colorado had legalized, and I had a friend in Colorado, and that person would mail me weed from Colorado. Their their brand new legal weed that they had just mm-hmm. got, and I got caught up with that. And, uh, I, I still don't, not a hundred percent sure how this happened, but I think a, a dog or somebody must've smelled the, the, the package. And I got arrested receiving the package one time. And at the that post time, office or, uh, well, it was at my apartment and you had to like go pick up the, the package from the, the lady at the apartment mm-hmm. office. And I did, and there was a cop waiting there and the rest is history. Right. But, uh, uh, so that time they ended up giving me a felony. Um, and that was a whole nother experience. Uh, one, because I'm working at a company that doesn't know I had these things in my past and I had just messed up again. Two, because I was already kind of living a double life. And, and once again, I'm, I, I'm trying to keep these things as secret as I can in my mm-hmm. life. And that's just really, you know, really stressful place to be. Yeah. Um, and I'm going through this whole court proceedings again. And that particular district didn't really care too much about sending me to jail, but they were going to make sure I got a felony. And they were going really, really hard after my car, even though I had no, uh, I had no, like, there's no way that that car could have been purchased with drug money because I wasn't selling drugs at the time. I just received it. Um, They still gave me the intent to distribute um, because I had mentioned at one point in the interview that I had shared with friends, you know, sometimes when with that weed that I had received from them. And then they said, okay, so when you do that, how does that relate to this car and whatever? They asked me so many questions about that freaking car. Um, but yeah, they really just wanted to impound the car. I'm looking back on it. I think that that was a lot of their impetus. They wanted That's to get so something weird. out of the yeah. deal. They also took a bunch of stuff from my apartment because they raided my apartment right after that and I never got back either. So, um, Anything of value? Uh, yeah. So I think it was not like super value, but there was electronics that were gone. It's probably like, I, I think a PlayStation four, I remember specifically. So, um, I'm, I was, or sorry, PlayStation three. I'm always wondering if like the cop was just like, Oh, Hey, it was around Christmas. Like, Hey, mm-hmm. I, I need to get a, something from a kid. Right. And just <laughs> grabbed it from I'm my sure apartment. That happens. You know, so I mean, seriously. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I ended up keeping that job and uh, once again, hired a lawyer. I think it was $4,000 that time that prosecutor just did not want to send me to jail. He didn't care. So in the four years, or the sorry, uh, uh, seven years between the two arrests, uh, there, I already noticed a big change in the, in the judicial system's policy towards, or at least Connecticut, their policy towards marijuana. 
Well, different so, different areas, right? You were on a college campus, which probably different optics with the prosecutor there has got to show that he's keeping these college students in line. And then, what were you in a, in a city or more, you know a more urban area for the second one? Or yeah, I was pretty close to Hartford. I was in Manchester, mm-hmm. Manchester, Connecticut. So it was definitely more urban, and they had bigger problems to deal with. You're yeah. you're, you're right. So. Um, but they, it was, it was a different experience and they, they wanted to push me through the system quickly and get me the help that I needed. Right. So their big concern was getting me into a drug program. Let me tell you, going through a drug program with people who have real addiction problems, when you got caught, uh, uh, just smoking weed, like they, I did not consider myself addicted to drugs. And I once again had to pretend to be something I'm not, which was addicted to drugs to get through that program. So that's how I felt about it the whole time. Yeah, that's, right. It's gotta be a strange but, experience for sure. Yeah. And everybody kind of looks at you. They, they know you're not taking it seriously or they're judging you for being there in the first place. So um, for, for a drug that you shouldn't really have those types of problems. It's like that. Not to you, say, have yeah. you ever seen the movie? Is it half baked with Dave Chappelle? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> love it. It's Bob. I, I won't say the quote. Yeah, with, with Bob Saget. <laughs> oh yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, there's no. Nobody is getting. Yeah, exactly. Nobody. Nobody's ruining their lives. Usually, unless you sleep through, eat too much food, and sleep through your final or something. Mm-hmm. You're that. That's the extent that something's gonna that using marijuana is gonna ruin your life. It might affect your motivation, but then you probably have some other deeper issues you got to deal with anyways. Right. You know. So. Um, yeah, so sorry. That's from from there. Uh, I I kept that job uh, uh, through the second arrest, avoided jail time, and then that time, I knew I needed to clean my life up. I had my wife had just come into my life. She was my girlfriend at the time, but um, she really was there for me, and I love her for it. And uh, and and we we focused on on building a life together, and mm-hmm. uh, that was really good for me. Uh, I was on probation for five years. Um, ended up getting released after two and a half. So, uh, completed all the, the, the probation, uh, requirements and, uh, and never violated or uh, I was completely clean. I wasn't using for that, those entire five years, Mm -hmm. um, or for those two and a half years. And I continued to not use for some time after that. So, um, and then, yeah, about two years ago, uh, I saw that this movement to legalize in Connecticut was gaining steam, and I saw attached to that was the potential expungement of every marijuana crime from people's record, including felony intent to distribute. And I thought, I really need to get involved in this. Uh, this is something I obviously would benefit me, but then again, my my I wasn't in a very bad place. I was employed, and um, I, I, I had managed to, to, to make something of myself. Um, but I knew that there were so many other people out there um, in Connecticut and around the country that just did not have the same opportunities and was not as lucky as me. Um, and that felony or any other arrest that they had on their record, it was keeping them from employment, most importantly from employment, but also from uh, from some state programs if they needed it. And then also from uh, having a place to live, yeah. keeping people from their Second Amendment rights, which is something that didn't matter me- to me at all. But it's starting to because I'm I'd like to get a pistol and I don't think it's going to happen anymore. So uh, yeah. yeah, so the right to, def- to defend your life and your family. I mean, yeah, it's it's crazy that they take they take that away from you. Yeah, so uh, a lot of really negative implications having a felony on your record, and I just saw that since that element was being discussed by discussed by advocates um, who obviously had the governor's ear, the newly elected governor's ear, and the legislature's ear that, uh, you know what, they really needed to hear my story too. Um, and that, so I just started getting out there. And while I had been completely shoving my story deep down inside, not telling anybody because I didn't want it to uh, impact my career negatively, I'm going to call that part of being stigmatized by the whole process. Um, yeah. Instead, I realized I need to let this out. I need to tell everybody what's going on, including people at work, including, you know, and slowly but surely have my story get out there to the people in the hopes in the people who are making decisions in the hopes that it would influence them um, in when they get to vote yes or no on this future legislation. Um, and that's pretty much what I've been doing since the beginning of 2018 is uh, uh, kind of been doing it on my own because there are a couple of groups here in Connecticut that have been working since 2008 or earlier to legalize. 
Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to step on anybody's toes and try to steal their thunder since we're, I feel like we're getting towards the end of this, please. 2020 might be our year, hopefully. But, uh, but at the same time, I do want, I did want to make sure that I got out there and told my story. So, um, you guys heard most of it. And since that time, actually, uh, uh, right before Thanksgiving, uh, I've really been inspired by this whole process and by talking to legislators mm-hmm. and uh, I actually ended up leaving that job, uh, on very good terms. But I'm spending the net and I spend saving up some money. So I've I've spending the next five months, which is the entire length of legislative session here in Connecticut. Um, uh, I took time off and I'm going to be up there lobbying full time to do this. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm really hoping that I can get this through or I can that we can the group of people who's worked really hard to get this message in front of legislators, get this get this through this session, because I do believe it's really, really important. And and waiting another, t- it looks like we don't get it through this year. It's going to be a two to four year wait until the legislature flips hands again. And there's another chance. So it's taking a real quick ad break here. One of our Lions of Liberty Pride members, Tyler Colford, he reached out to me and he recently upgraded to our $100 level where he gets an ad. And uh, he decided to use this ad today because he has a special message for you out there. He wanted me to let you all know that He's into long walks through the woods. He's into comic books, Graham Hancock novels, video games, and Austrian economics. And if you're into some of those same things, then check out his rap group, Jinx Inc. It's available on all streaming platforms. I was just listening to his song, Bootstraps, on Spotify. So check out Bootstraps. Check out Jinx Inc. That's J-Y-N. N-X-I-N-C J-Y-N-X-I-N-C Jinx Inc. Check it out. I know states have gone about it different ways. Just to be clear that in Connecticut it would need to be it would be legislative a legislative yeah, bill, and then the governor would sign it. It wouldn't be, you know, voted on as a uh, ballot initiative or anything like that. We don't have a referendum process okay. in Connecticut, so the only way to do that in Connecticut would be to do a constitutional amendment, which is a two-year process, which means it would be voted on in 2022, maybe legalized in 2023, probably 2024. So that's the backup plan if this doesn't work out this session. That's that seems like what some people are pushing for. What's the makeup of the uh, the state legislator in Connecticut? Is it a mix of Republicans and Democrats? Is it is it skewed way you know much more one way than the other? I, I have no idea. We've been blue for uh, we've been blue for forty years. We've had a couple. We've had the governor uh, flip hands a couple of you know. There's been a couple of uh, Republican governors in there, but it's been largely Democrat. Um, for the last 40 years, um, pre- completely Democrat for the last 40 years, and they've controlled the, the the legislature for the last 40 years. And they have, if not a supermajority, a very close to a supermajority right now in the Senate uh, and representatives or House of Representatives. Um, however, I, I tend to find that the, the people who are calling themselves Democrats in Connecticut nowadays, they're very moderate Democrats. Um, there is a group of progressives who are actually pushing for this, this social justice. And, and, and really, they're the ones who are pushing uh, for this legalization process. But the moderate Democrats are the ones that I'm having that I'm putting most of my effort into uh, telling my story um, so that they yeah, so that they have my story because they're the ones who aren't sold on this yet. I, I think a lot of these people would be Republicans in other states, but um, because of the history of our state and yeah. for their political, the politically expedient party, uh, at least around here, is you got to be Democrat um, or you're usually not getting any traction unless. Mm-hmm. It's uh, interesting how that works. Um, yeah, if you compare uh, maybe a, a Democrat in Connecticut to a Democrat in, I don't know, um, California, I'm sure they might be very different. Oh, yeah. If you were to take your average your average Democrat in Connecticut. They're not even close to California unless they're from that uh, progressive party wing, which is about, I think a third of the democratic party is from the progressive party. And they align more to the, that West coast, uh, blue politics there. So um, don't spend a whole lot of time working on them. I really spend a lot of time on the Republicans though. So also, I mean, this, I've been a Republican almost my whole life. uh, And this whole process drove me to actually leave the Republican party. And I registered uh, in December to be a, a libertarian. So okay, wow. awesome. they are definitely the opposition party in Connecticut. So that comes with a whole separate bunch of rules, 
but uh, uh, you know, I've really been trying to get to bring there. There's some libertarian-minded Republicans that should vote in favor of legalizing marijuana, mm-hmm. um, and I've been working on trying to bring them, give them the confidence to do so if if the time comes around. But what I'm starting to realize now is that uh, if the Democrats can't do this unilaterally in Connecticut. Uh, they're not going to do it at all. So I really need to work on members of their party. And that's what I'm going to be doing tomorrow when our legislative session opens on this Wednesday, September 5th. So, or February 5th, sorry. So, Very yeah. cool. So has there been any uh, any polling in Connecticut on how the public feels about legalized recreational marijuana or anything? Oh, yeah. Uh, 68% are in favor of it. It's very... Uh, very popular as it is around the country. 60% of people in the country um, uh, uh, believe it, that it should be legalized at taxed and regulated in some way. Um, and I'm just talking about right, uh, a recreational, not uh, medical, much, right. much higher percentages believe that medical cannabis should be available. So, um, but yeah, obviously uh, most States and particularly Connecticut, mm-hmm. our policies just have not aligned on a lot of things with what the public wants. And uh, this is certainly one of those things. I have my uh, theories as to why. And I think a lot of it has to do with some of the lobbying money that's coming in into our state Hmm. and also into the federal government, too. What's the what's the reason that, you know, people, either Republicans or Democrats, what reasons do they give you for not supporting this? So for the last two years, I've probably had about well over 2000 conversations with people like legislators and then mm-hmm. normal people too, just like you and me and everyone, whether they support it or not, their biggest concern is being able to enforce driving. So they don't want yeah. people to get high and drive. And because you don't have the ability to like mouth swab or blood test or breathalyze or whatever to, you know, authoritatively crack down on that person mm-hmm. in the act of driving right that moment, um, they, they are conditioned, I'm going to say by the current way of, uh, of using a breathalyzer to enforce mm-hmm. alcohol, you know, drunk driving, um, they're, they really want to see the same thing for marijuana. Um, I, a couple you know, valid concerns in, to a certain extent. Uh, however, I don't believe that it should infringe on our liberties in the end, it's everybody's decision and responsibility to drive safely um, mm-hmm. and to not drive impaired. And there's a lot of things you can't test for out there. You can't test for opioids. You can't test for being tired. Uh, you, for the most yeah. part, can't test for looking at your phone um, and all you can't these test things. For eating a sandwich when you're driving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you know, while they have distracted driving laws, right? Uh, they don't have anything that prevents you from. They don't take antihistamines off the shelf. Uh, they don't stop completely stop giving people their 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 medicines that can interfere with you know machinery and you know there's a, a number of things in CVS right now if you go that'll say you know don't drive or don't operate machinery so right. um, it hasn't hasn't denied them from or hasn't hasn't caused the government to deny us our liberties to consume those things it's just the fact that marijuana was made illegal 80 years ago that it's just easier for them to leave it you know, uh, illegal to keep it illegal, um, than it is for them to actually legalize it, um, and, uh, come up with a new method of enforcement. And what I would say is, you know, unfortunately you're just going to have to have your cops be trained in a different method of, of an analyzing it. Right. Yeah. Um, and if it means detaining people, so they're not a danger to themselves, but you don't get that magic arrest, then, uh, that so be it. That's what I would say. If you're really worried, you're, the cops have the ability to detain somebody for an amount of time so they're not a threat to themselves. Have them do that. But that's significantly more work than booking somebody, and they don't get the arrest at the end of the day. Which, yeah, and, and I mean, I've heard the exact same thing from people on the on the driving. That's the first. It's the first thing you hear. It, it, it's it is interesting, but it's interesting that people don't. I mean, obviously, marijuana has been illegal for you know, decades and decades, people are still smoking it. People are still driving. Um, why are they worried about that now? It's, I, I don't know. It, it just doesn't make any sense. I have heard that it might've been, uh, it might be the univer- university of Pittsburgh, which is where I live. Might I think I heard they developed, and I don't know like what sort of stage it's in, but developed some sort of way to test with a breathalyzer. Not that I would support that, but, uh, 
I've heard there's there's at least some prototypes out there for that. Which yeah, there's a lot of research going into it, and the most viable one is a mouth swab, which is will give you false positives for all sorts of things. And yeah. it, that breathalyzer, I think it, it was University of Pittsburgh, um, coffee, other things will set it off too. So really? yeah, so they're they're getting there. But even <laughs> then, I'd say how's that gonna anyway? T, everybody's built differently, and having a different THC, the active intoxicant in in marijuana. Everybody's going to react differently to different yeah. levels of THC in their blood. So, um, you know, it just doesn't seem like a, a one size fits all uh, solution. Different, different strains, you know, are going to affect people in different ways. Yeah, it's there's, it's even less one size fits all than alcohol. And alcohol should not be one size fits all. It's, it's my opinion. It's ridic- ridiculous that you have this, you know, standard line that everyone's going to react the same, and their ability to drive is going to drop the same standard amount based on uh, this arbitrary uh, percentage of alcohol in, in your blood. But, but um, so I guess the only statistic I have to counter this when I'm discussing it with those people is that there's been a little bit of, uh, you know, there's been eight years of research since Colorado legalized eight years of mm-hmm. statistics. And uh, it looks like fatalities and crashes have actually gone down very, very slightly. Um, that's probably within the margin of error of that amount of time in those surveys, but uh, it hasn't got worse. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's really the only thing that I can say is that, you know, call, is, is point them to Colorado as a whole to say that, you know, this, this problem has not gotten worse since they've legalized it. There has not been a high profile uh, somebody's high and crashes and kills 15 people anywhere that mm-hmm. I've heard. And I keep looking for it. And there, there just hasn't been a high profile uh, marijuana yeah. case that involving a car. So, And there um, will be more and more data as, you know, since so many, so many more states are legalizing uh, recreationally. So as that data comes in and more data comes in, hopefully that does help to persuade since uh, I guess people need that today. Very quickly, the number two reason, and this mm-hmm. is a v- really close number two, is that everybody seems to know somebody who never got out of their mom's basement, right? Who's just been smoking weed their whole life and and mm-hmm. is not very motivated to do very much with I their life. People like that, and they seem to blame it on the marijuana. But I don't think it's the marijuana. I think that they would probably be doing that, you know, whether they uh, imbibed with marijuana or anything else. Anyway, they'd probably be a low. There might be some depression there. There might be some other uh, uh, challenges that those people have in their lives. But uh, as with all drugs if there's something going on with somebody, it's not the drug's fault. It's, it's mm-hmm. the person's got something that they got to deal with usually and uh, something they got to work through. I certainly have had it many times. So, um, and with marijuana, I was really, I got that first year at UConn and I was selling and smoking more than I ever have in my entire mm-hmm. life. Uh, I went from a, a 3.8 GPA down to a two GPA. Right. And I just barely mm-hmm. made it through that first year at UConn. So um, anyway, I obviously had some things I needed to work through and I'm glad that I was able to do that. So, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, marijuana can be abused. I don't think anybody is saying, uh, is arguing that it can't be. Um, yep. but that's not a reason to make it illegal. It's not a reason to, uh, have a huge prohibition, uh, federal prohibition, but Nick, before I let you go, I want to give, uh, give you a chance to let people know where they can maybe learn how to help out, you know, help you out, help your activism. I don't know if you have, a a website or what the best way is if anybody, maybe some listeners up in uh, Connecticut want to get involved. What can they, uh, what can they do? Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, uh, I'd love if you guys would look me up on Facebook. I'm only on Facebook right now, but uh, I have an advocacy page there. It's Nicholas Stein, comma, marijuana activist, or sorry, legal marijuana advocate, not activist. I just changed that. So look me up. If you look up Nicholas Stein, it should be one of the only pages there, right? Um, and, uh, I put a lot of information about on, uh, on that. I use that as my forum to, to share all the best information I have about legalize all the mm-hmm. best reasons to legalize. Um, I focused a lot on personal liberties. I actually just authored this letter that I'm going to send to the governor and, and I have a petition of over 700 physical signatures that people have signed attached to this letter. And it's got four main reasons. And uh, my main one is one personal liberties, uh, which has to do with uh, also has to do with people not getting uh, uh, experiencing those consequences of, of you know, uh, going to jail in the criminal justice system for just getting, you know, just using marijuana occasionally. Right. I, it just doesn't make sense. Um, but there's a lot of really good consumer safety reasons, too. Right. So um, 
the product that you're getting on the black market is not nearly as safe as what you can get from a dispensary. Um, they're using pesticides, fertilizers, uh, molds, anti-mold things, all of, and some, a lot of them when, when they're burned, uh, they'll, it'll turn into arsenic or other really bad things that you will end up ingesting when you're, when you're using black market marijuana. So, uh, we just saw this whole vape crisis. I'm not sure if you've followed oh, yeah. that, right? But the CDC officially, you know, 60 deaths and countless injuries. I think it's over 450 injuries, um, uh, in, in, in their lungs that, um, is associated with, with bad vape products. And these are THC vape cartridges that were only available on the black market. The right. CDC has, has, has targeted those. Um, and they or has, has uh, identified that those were the cause of this crisis. And because of that, they outlawed tobacco vape products, which have nothing to do with anything. And it's much, much harder, like in neighboring Massachusetts where marijuana is legal, you couldn't get vape products there for a really long time either. That and, they, and they raised the smoking age to 21. That was part yeah. of the response too. Just yeah, and, it made no sense, right? So they, they, they'll they just grab, it seems like there's, uh, yeah, oh, there's some, I got a lot of conspiracy theories, but um, <laughs> what this act did in actuality is um, it drove people back to the black market. If they had been getting a, a safe, clean source from a dispensary, then not being able to get it for a certain amount of time, they went back to the black market right in the middle of the vape crisis when all of these vape cartridges were out there with the chemicals, you know, glycol and vitamin E acetate that were getting mm -hmm. people sick. So it's just the, the product is tested for safety. That's one of my main reasons. And then also you're not having kids or anyone else for that matter going to the, the black market just for weed, you know, um, where you unless you're on coming to see me on UConn campus, you were probably also getting offered cocaine maybe things like crack mm -hmm. or opioids also much more addictive, destructive drugs. And just the act of exposing yourself to the black market and you can, you can start getting involved in, in organized crime and things like that. Oh, yeah. So that's one of my major, that's one of my major reasons is I don't ever want to have to go to a drug dealer again. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want anyone, I have a daughter, I have a two year old daughter, right? I don't, you know, she's going to make decisions she's going to make. And I don't want her ever to have to put herself in a lot of the really sketchy situations that I put myself in. Um, if she decides to, to use marijuana later in life, mm -hmm. uh, honey, if you're listening to this, we'll talk about that later. So, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, yeah. And then another thing is, is, uh, Northeast Connecticut is a really, um, where we got left behind by the rest of the state during the, um, during development and, and industry. Right. So we used to have a lot of manufacturing, all those jobs left 30, 40 years ago, and it hasn't backfilled, right? So my particular area of the state um, is pretty depressed compared, economically depressed compared to the rest of the um, state. And we have some pockets of really cool stuff going on, but I just see the or the uh, uh, marijuana legal marijuana industry as a potential boom for Northeast Connecticut. And I'm doing everything I can to try to actually attract the industry to come invest in, mm -hmm. in Northeast Connecticut. And if I could be involved in that, after this advocacy, I, I think I, I think I will. I'm, I'm really passionate about trying to bring the legal marijuana industry here because right. there's a lot of good it's doing. Um, you know, 13 billion dollars in legal sales this year in the United States. Uh, that's one of the fastest growing industries possible. And mm -hmm. any state that you know wants to develop its economy should really take a look at at what the uh, legal marijuana industry can do. And because it's federally illegal. Connecticut's entire demand for legal marijuana, if it's legalized this year, will have to be met by companies cultivating it and manufacturing it right here in Connecticut. So that's a homegrown industry that, you know, can really help a lot of people. I see them every day who got left behind by the manufacturing industry and, and haven't found that next opportunity. Um, and marijuana is much more growing marijuana nowadays is much more manufacturing than it is agriculture. So just I'm hoping that I can use it to make a positive impact in my community economically and make some people's lives better. And then there's the tax revenue piece of it. And Connecticut is broke as shit. We've mismanaged our money for so long. And uh, and and now there's a lot of pressure to get caught up on that. Right. Mm -hmm. So honestly, if it was not if Connecticut did not need the tax revenue, the Democrats would not be pushing for this right now. This is in a lot of ways a really blatant cash grab for tax revenue. Mm -hmm. So now I'm also dealing with people on the other side, people who support legalization who are like, I can't get behind this bill because there's too many taxes attack, uh, attached to it. And they're still discussing what that is, but it looks like it's going to be a 20 to 30% tax, right? And that will keep the black market alive and well, which is probably right. true, but I still see it as incremental improvement 
Uh, the expungement piece is what is key. And I'm hoping that I can yeah. reach out to those people and let them know, like, listen, even if there's a tax, tax attached to it, just getting this expungement clause is going to change people's lives. It's going to make them, you know, it's, it's really going to make an impact on, on people who have been arrested for this before, who are, could potentially be looking for work or apartments or any of those things and get the stigma off those people. Uh, and you know, that's, that's, I think some of the biggest changes we can make and, and that's what I'm, I'm hoping to do. And that's what, uh, I'm working with, uh, you know, some really good other people and I'm working with the, uh, Wyndham County, Wyndham County libertarians to do so. Awesome. Um, yeah, so that's that's great stuff, and I love that you are, you know, communicating your message in a way that you know this is a public safety issue. It's also a jobs issue. You know, this is going to stimulate the economy. These are things that are you know clear as day when people start to actually look at the the facts and figures here. Um, the tax issue, of course, you're not going to be surprised. Uh, you know, I have, I have the same concerns, and seeing uh, these uh, legal. Uh, bills to legalize recreationally in other states. I know Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania uh, Democrats put one forward recently where, of course, it had the huge tax, but not only that, it's, of course, very uh, cronyized where, you know, there's only certain licenses that that they're giving out and, you know, they're only going to give them to, you know, four or five different corporations uh, that can come in. But, those are concerns, and you know, I definitely do agree with you that it's better than the alternative to to a point. I don't know. I I don't know what that, what that line is. I know Ohio had a bill a couple of years ago that was just uh, complete garbage because it was like one company was going to control all of the growing, all of the distribution, uh, which is just just ridiculous. But it's a. I understand it's a balancing act, and I understand that. I agree with you. The most important thing is the expungements and getting those people, uh, you know, getting that stigma off of them um, and moving the ball forward there. But I, you know, I definitely, uh, definitely give you kudos for, uh, for, for, you know, for doing this, for, for being an advocate. Thank you, John. And just a quick note on that, the way it looks like it might happen, most likely will happen in Connecticut is with equity in mind. That means that, uh, you know, they're going to at least carve off some portion of the legal marijuana industry to go to uh, groups of people and communities that have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. Right. So mm-hmm. it's been a really strong push to do that throughout the entire legalization process. So I'm really hopeful and encouraged that this isn't going to be one, a whole in- completely corporate enterprise. So mm-hmm. um, and, and then also uh, hopefully will be regulated in a way that provides consumer access um, to everybody who wants it so that they're not faced with any of these other tough decisions I've been talking about. And I guess if I had a pipe dream beyond my hope of hopes, it's that this advocacy would somehow get me in front of our governor, Ned Lamont, so I could make a pitch to him, my elevator pitch. I want to be on your cannabis commission (laughs) as, and I I want to be someone, you know, involved in, in trying to get these who are approving these licenses. Um, One, because I've seen it from a criminal justice point of view. um, So I've lived that uh, end of things. Um, I have an economics major. I've worked in big corporations. I see how it works from that side of things. But also I'm from Northeast Connecticut, where I think a, a smaller, more a small business approach would really, really work uh, well for that community, too. So, um, you know, I really want to my, my main focus is consumer advocacy and, and criminal justice advocacy. Um, and if I could take that perspective and somehow use it to to implement the policy uh, later in life, whether that's on the cannabis commission or somewhere else, that's, that's, you know, what I'm angling to do here. And everything is just practice for that. That's what I'm, that's what I'm kind of the way that I'm looking at this. And, uh, if I get through it and either the bill passes or it hasn't, and I haven't done that, well, I can always go back to aerospace and I'd be very, very happy to do that too. But at least I will have told my story. Um, I, I, I'm really passionate about this obviously. And, um, I won't be living that double life anymore, which was crushing Mm -hmm. me forever. So, um, thank yeah. you very, thank you very much for hearing my story. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Nick. And I encourage our our audience to uh, to reach out and uh, and help Nick in, in any way that you can. And uh, yeah, just keep up the great work. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, maybe get an update here in a couple of months from you. Sounds good. Session ends in April, so uh, give me reach out to me in April. I'll let you know how it went. All right. Okay. Sounds good. See you, Nick. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to today's show. Another great episode of Felony Friday. 
As you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest-running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, and just just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing for the great price of $0 per month. You get everything that we have here. So please check everything out. And uh, if you like it all, please think about, consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Liberty. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Lines of Liberty. And the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to to talk about politics, liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, which you can find by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook, clicking search, comes up, say you want to join it, answer a question, bam, you're in, and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you. So check that out. That's all I have for today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.